0: Well, hello and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and hope you are having a good day and you're going to enjoy some fine jazz today. So, thank you for joining us. And uh, if this is your first time, hope you take a look at some of our backlog of podcasts. We have quite a few, and I uh, hope some of you might be interested in sponsoring us. We have a little sponsorship button somewhere on your menu, and uh, you can do a monthly sponsorship or, or a one time sponsorship. And uh, we're always looking for new members of the family to help us uh, to keep this program going and to encourage encourage us to keep going with more interesting and in-depth jazz podcasts. So today we're going to be featuring the music of one particular band. It's not really well known today but it uh, had a few moments of success in the late 1950s and into the middle 1960s. It was a band that kind of identified itself as a traditional jazz band, at least that's what we'd call it today. Um, The name New Orleans was in the title and uh, the players were trying to uh, recapture some of the spirit and the glory of New Orleans jazz of the 1920s and uh, before that as well. This was a time when what we would call Dixieland today, or what has been called Dixieland or traditional jazz, New Orleans jazz, what have you, was very popular um, culturally in the United States. And A few years later, it became even more popular in England with the great trad jazz boom of the 1960s. Uh, Many groups in the United States in the 1950s were put together to capitalize on this popularity and to try to recreate some of the sounds of these earlier jazz musicians. Uh, Many young white players who were in college and just out of college put these groups together and uh, kept them going for for decades in some cases. Uh, There were uh, older white musicians who had been popular and uh, prominent in the swing era who started gravitating to uh, this style, the Dixieland style with people like the Bob Crosby uh, units which had Eddie Miller and Yank Lawson and Matty Matlock and then uh, on the east coast Yank Lawson was there with um, Bob Haggard, who was also part of the Crosby band and they started uh, putting out Dixieland records that uh, were, were often pop centered or dance centered and they, they were becoming quite popular in the 50s and uh, the Dukes of Dixieland in New Orleans. A bunch of young white musicians started putting out those audio fidelity you have to hear it to believe it albums in the 50s and into the 60s and that put uh, uh, this style of music on the uh, front burner of American popular culture. This group we're going to talk about today was actually quite different in scope. These were some prominent African-American musicians from the Chicago area. Most of them had been active in bands in the 1920s and some even before that, so they were coming from uh, something a little bit closer to the source, I suppose. None of these musicians were from New Orleans, but the band was called the original Jazz All-Stars and sometimes had New Orleans shoehorned in the title as well. Its leader and founder and musical director was a saxophone and clarinet player named Franz Jackson. Franz Jackson was a, a very good swing era musician. His career actually went back into the 1920s. Yeah, He was born in um, 1912 in Illinois. He lived until 2008. He had a very, very long life and he was playing very well up until the end. Um, in his days in the 1930s, he was known more as a saxophone player and as an arranger as well, although he did some good clarinet playing. We did a uh, show on Roy Eldridge's band that was live, uh, did some live dates from Chicago and New York, a, a sort of a small, big band, and that featured France Jackson uh, doing some arranging, some composing, and some tenor sax and clarinet playing as well. He also had played with the Fletcher Henderson Band in Chicago. He had played with Jimmy Noon's small band. He was a second saxophone in that. He had played with Albert Ammons. Uh, Cootie Williams, Frankie Newton he he had quite a a varied career he was a very well respected musician he also played with Earl Hines for a while and uh, uh, contributed some of his uh, compositions to the Earl Hines book by the middle 1950s uh, he decided that he was going to put a group together to uh, recreate again these earlier styles and he was on the younger side of course. He was only in his mid-40s at the time uh, but he was, a, as I said, a very good clarinet player and he had worked with some of those early New Orleans musicians such as Jimmy Noon. He'd also worked briefly with Louis Armstrong and uh, he was uh, enamored of the style and he put a group together which again he called the original Jazz All-Stars, J-A-S-S All-Stars which had a regular engagement at the Red Arrow in Chicago for a number of years and uh, built a, a repertoire and a, a style that um, culminated in three or four or five albums that they put out in the late 50s and early 60s. They did a European tour and they were well known on the Chicago scene. Included in this band at different times were uh, some Sort of second, I would have to say secondary African American musicians from the Chicago scene. These were musicians who were not band leaders for the most part themselves. They were sidemen in other groups. They weren't necessarily known as great soloists, but they were solid, uh, dependable musicians. Bob Schaffner on trumpet, he had uh, been born in um, uh, St. Louis in 1900. He lived to 1983. He came up through the uh, St. Louis style of brass playing. There were It was a school of excellent, excellent brass uh, players, especially trumpet players in St. Louis who became jazz musicians. People like Charlie Kreeth and Dewey Jackson, a little bit later Ed Allen, uh, Clark Terry, Miles Davis could even be numbered in that group. Uh, Joe Thomas, we've played many of his recordings before, he was from St. Louis. And uh, also in this group was this fellow Bob Schaffner. He ended up in Chicago in the 1920s. He actually uh, replaced Louis Armstrong with King Oliver's band, I'm not sure if he was the first replacement but he was a fairly long-term replacement of several years and the first recordings of King Oliver's Dixie Syncopators, which was the enlarged band uh, that uh, came out of his days with Louis Armstrong, uh, featured Bob Schaffner playing second cornet and playing a few solos here and there. He recorded with uh, Lovey Austin, with uh, Jimmy O'Brien, with quite a few uh, players from that period. He was briefly with Earl Hines band, he played with Fletcher Henderson's band for a little while and then he retired from the music business, um, although he was leading a marching band uh, throughout the 40s and 50s that Franz Jackson uh, played in, and when the band was put together by Jackson, he called Bob Schaffner, who knew the repertoire, and even uh, in his 60s, was still a very strong player as we will see. On trombone, on the first few sides anyway, we have Al Wynn, who we've heard uh, play on some of our broadcasts before. The Punch Miller uh, radio show and and podcast that I did featured a couple of tunes by the Al Wynn recording band in the 1920s. He had played with Louis Armstrong and Fletcher Henderson. Many of these musicians were in and out of the same bands, as you can tell. And uh, many other Chicago groups as well. He even accompanied Ma Rainey on a tour at one point. He was born in 1907 and uh, lived into the 70s as well on piano on this uh recording the first few recordings we're going to hear is roselle claxton he was one of the youngest musicians in this group he was born 1912 he lived uh, to 1995 and he played in some of the more um i guess you'd have to say progressive swing bands of the 1930s harlan leonard uh he had subbed and played for a while with jimmy Lunsford. a little bit later and uh, he was known as an arranger and composer too Bill Oldham was on tr- on tuba, excuse me. He also played string bass. He had played string bass with Louis Armstrong's big band in the early 30s. Uh, he was a very well-schooled musician who kept studying through his life. He ended up becoming a classical composer and composed a couple of symphonies, apparently. Uh, he had... Um had been born in Appalachia, but raised in Chicago, and uh, played with all sorts of bands through the 1930s and 40s. He's re- on a number of recordings. Lawrence Dixon is the banjo player. He was the oldest musician, born in 1894. He lived in 1970. He played with the territory band led by Sammy Stewart uh, in uh, the 1920s, and then left him to go to Earl Hines' Band, and he spent most of the 30s with Heinz. He was a very good rhythm guitar player, but as we'll hear, he was kind of a, a flashy show band. Anjo player as well. Richard Curry is on drums. He's probably the least known musician. He had uh, spent most of his life in Chicago. I think he was born uh, about 1900, played with Darnell Howard, and did many local gigs, but uh, we'll be hearing him here as well. And then there are a few other personnel changes, but that's the band that's going to begin this program. And we're going to start with three tunes that were from an album they put out uh, in about 1958-59, and it was called Jazz, Jazz, Jazz on Phillips. And the three tunes we're going to hear from that album are the uh, uh, the new orleans march standard high society wc handy's beale street blues which features a a franz jackson vocal and cornet chop suey the louis armstrong showpiece which uh is impressively done by bob schaffner so those three tunes will start us out high society beale street blues and cornet chop suey
1: Never drink booze and the blind man on the corner who sings a deal street blues he says i'd rather be there than any place i know yes i'd rather be there than any place i know oh now it's gonna take the sergeant go. Yes, now I'm going down to the river pretty by and by. Yes, I'm going down to the river that's long, deep, and wide. Of I'm here in Memphis. My gal On
2: the other side, on the other side.
0: That was Franz Jackson's original Jazz All-Stars. As I said, that band had been founded in 1957. This particular album, Jazz, 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 had come out in the late 50s, 58, 59, somewhere around there. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, uh, the band, uh, as I said, had had a regular engagement at the Red Arrow and, in Chicago, and they were gigging around other places as well, and I think they did private functions. They became pretty uh, influential on the next generation of musicians who came up playing this style, particularly the white musicians in Chicago who were sort of grouped around uh, what uh, the band that was known as the original Salty Dog, or the Salty Dogs, uh, which was founded at Purdue University in the late 40s, and uh, many of those musicians went on to play in many, many other bands. That was sort of the driving force in Chicago jazz, in traditional jazz anyway, in the 60s going into the 70s, and uh, I believe they were pretty pretty influenced by this group. So we started out with the New Orleans March High Society by Porter Steele. Franz Jackson did a nice job on the traditional clarinet solo there. Uh, Heard some very biting cornet uh, from Bob Schaffner. I guess he was playing trumpet at that point. He had played cornet in the 20s and uh, he had a must have had a pretty iron lip uh, from his good training in his early St. Louis days and his marching band that he was still playing with. Uh, he could pop out the high notes as we heard later on in that set and Al Wim did a nice job in a bluesy trombone style. Um, Al Wynn, a little bit of trivia, was the original choice of Sidney Bechet's to play in his uh, New Orleans Feet Warmers band in 1932 with Tommy Ladner. uh, but he wasn't available. I think he was on tour with the Sam Wooding band at the time, and he wasn't able to do it, so um, they had to get someone else. So we heard after High Society the Beale Street Blues, which featured featured a vocal by the leader Franz Jackson, and that was a he was a pretty reasonable singer. He had a good bluesy style, and uh, he was had an engaging manner with the audience. He was also a very good writer. He composed a number of tunes that this band did. I don't think we're going to hear any of them today, but uh, some of his tunes that had been recorded by Earl Hines and different people almost became jazz standards. Yellow Fire was one of them, and uh, uh, There are a couple of others that uh, I'll mention as we go along, but uh, they're well worth seeking out. And uh, Jackson, even after this band broke up in the mid to late 60s, was still recording with other groups. He had some other bands that uh, he put together when he moved out to Michigan. He lived in Michigan, I think, the last 25 or 30 years of his life. And he had bands out there, and he frequently recorded in different combinations. So then we finished up with the Louis Armstrong composition, Cornet Chop Suey, which was a showcase for Bob Schaffner, who did a noble job at that. He was, uh, as I said, in his, oh, probably about 60 at this point, and uh, he had been playing right along, so he still had chops left to do that. He even did the Stop Time Chorus, which many trumpet players uh, elect to omit on their versions of Cornet Chop Suey. So we're going to go next to another album that they did about the same time, 1959, for Pinnacle, um, or it was released on Pinnacle. The recording was done for Replica, and it's the same band with the exception of the piano player. Ralph Turvalon is the piano player on this one. I don't know too much about him. I know he was uh, born uh, the same time as most of these other musicians, about 1902, and he lived into the late 70s. Uh, he recorded in the 1930s with uh, Frankie Halfpint Jackson. I think he uh, recorded with. Um, Uh, Natty Dominique and and Baby Dodds a little bit later on, after the 1920s, after the the first bloom of the style of jazz, when they were sort of getting into a more revival mode. He was the piano player for several of those groups, and he played with this group for at least a couple of years. We're going to start out with the Sugarfoot Stomp, which was originally known as the Dippermouth Blues. Of course, it was a King Oliver tune uh, on their original recording. In 1923, King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band uh, featured Oliver's cornet for three solo choruses. And we're going to hear Bob Schaffner uh, take off on that a little bit. And we'll also hear the traditional clarinet solo by Johnny Dodds, here played by France Jackson. Uh, We're going to hear four tunes, actually, in this set. Uh, As I said, Sugarfoot Stomp is the first one. Then we're going to go on to uh, an album that uh, came from a little bit later. This is a... uh, The tune we're going to hear first from there is called Bud Billiken. Bud Billiken was a... Uh, a character in, I think it was the Chicago Defender, the African American newspaper of the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. I think it was kind of a self-help column, um, like a Dear Abby thing almost. And Bud Billiken dispensed advice and. He had enough uh, fame or notoriety in African-American society that uh, a parade was given in his honor that still happens, I believe, from year to year. It's a big African-American parade that goes from the traditionally black south side of Chicago uh, through, and I think it goes into the central part of Chicago as well, and even uh, today, probably not this year, this past year, but up until 2019 anyway, I believe they still had this parade. And Franz Jackson wrote this tune, so this is one of his tunes. It's not one of his more notable ones, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. And it's called Bud Billiken. And it is from the album uh, that came from the uh, alive date that this band did at the Chicago Public Library in 1963. And this features a slightly different band. Same rhythm section, Lawrence Dixon on banjo, Bill Oldham on on tuba, Richard Curry on drums, and Roselle Claxton is back on piano. Bob Schaffner and uh, friends Jackson are there and on trombone we have John Thomas who was another african-american musician who uh, had recorded uh, on some very notable recording dates in the 1920s. He had been born in um, uh, I think he was born in Kentucky actually he was born in 1900 and lived into the 1970s. He played with Erskine Tate's theater band in the 1920s but he made uh, again some famous recordings. He played on all the Hot Seven recordings that Louis Armstrong did. It was thought to have been Kid Ori for many years but he was out of town on the week that those recordings were made and it was indeed John Thomas who played uh, trombone and did some very good solos on those. He also recorded uh, with uh, Johnny Dodd's Black Bottom Stompers and in the 30s with um, several African-American jazz groups as well. He too left uh, music in the 1940s during World War II and uh, was Pretty much lured out of uh, retirement to become a full-time musician again by Franz Jackson. And we're going to hear him on most of the rest of these recordings we're going to listen to today. So after Bud Billiken from the same album we're going to hear a feature for Lawrence Dixon on banjo called Snap Happy and this uh, shows kind of an old style of, of show banjo, almost a vaudeville style of banjo playing but very well done in this case. Then we're going to end up with Panama which is uh, from the uh, Pinnacle LP from 1961 called Live at the Red Arrow and that again features the same band that we just talked about. So those will be our four tunes uh, for this set. The Sugarfoot Stomp aka Dippermouth Blues, Bud Billiken, Snap Happy and Panama. but not a noisy finish uh, to that set. That was Panama, the great New Orleans standard march that uh, had so many wonderful jazz recordings of it. This band, uh, the original Jazz All-Stars, tended to favor the medium tempos more. Uh, They were going for a groove. I think they played for dancing quite a lot. And they had that in common with uh, the New Orleans Revival bands from the early 1940s. And that scene down there was much better uh, notated, of course. They brought out quite a lot of early African American and white musicians who had been active in the 1910s and 20s many of whom hadn't played in, in, in a decade or two uh, and put them back on stage and on tour and so forth uh, trying to recreate the music uh, of their youth essentially. This band uh, was primarily made up not primarily, it was exclusively made up of professional musicians performing musicians who had all played uh, regularly up through the 20s, 30s and into the 40s a couple of them had retired briefly although I don't think they had retired completely. Bob Schaffner certainly hadn't, and I don't think John Thomas did either. They just retired from full-time performing. And uh, when they came back to this band in 1957, they were still playing at a very high level. So before Panama, we heard Snap Happy, the banjo feature for Lawrence Dixon. Very fun, impressive number that I have to admit I know nothing about. I did a web search, and I'm not sure if that was an original ragtime number uh, or if it might have been written by Franz Jackson or possibly Lawrence Dixon. So... uh Sorry to plead ignorance on that one, but a good performance nonetheless. Before that was Bud Billiken, which was a kind of a March tune in the spirit of that Bud Billiken parade I talked about earlier. And then Sugarfoot stopped before that, where we had Franz Jackson and uh, John Thomas and especially Bob Schaffner taking uh, honors on their solos in that uh, King Oliver classic. So now we're going to go to an album that this band did in 1961 for Riverside. Riverside was a much larger and better distributed recording company than the ones we talked about, Pinnacle, Replica, and so forth. Those were primarily... Midwest and Chicago companies uh, with not a lot of distribution, but Riverside was a national jazz alb- uh, jazz label, and the producer of this record was Chris Albertson, who uh, was very well known for uh, writing books, and wrote a book on Bessie Smith, and uh, was a jazz journalist as well. He uh, somehow got uh, the wheels turning at Riverside to bring recording equipment to Chicago during the fall of 1961, and he recorded several bands, including a couple of working ones. This one was one, the Earl Hines which had just come back from uh, an extended stay in San Francisco, was another one. Uh, He recorded Lil Hardin Armstrong leading a jam session, which included several of the musicians from uh, this band that we're hearing right now. Uh, He also recorded some blues uh, performers and um, some other Chicago uh, people as well. So he he really preserved a a good deal of the 1920s and 30s Chicago tradition uh, during this recording journey. And fortunately, uh, the Franz Jackson Original Jazz All-Stars were uh, in very good shape on the day that they recorded this at the Birdhouse. Uh, the band was clearly well rehearsed, uh, the recording quality was better on this album than it has been on the other ones we've listened to so far, and the band really plays with a with a fire. We're going to start out with a 19, I think it was 1917 ragtime dance number called Shimmy Wobble" by Spencer Williams. and. Uh, There uh, are clearly some more organized arrangements in this uh, session. Franz Jackson, as I said, was a good arranger. I'm sure he wrote parts out, and all the musicians were good readers in this band. From there, we're going to go to uh, the uh, F.W. Bagley March, Colonel Bogey. The Colonel Bogey March, which of course was made famous a few years later in the movie The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, But uh, this is a good jazz performance of this. After that, the Jelly Roll Morton tune... King Porter Stomp, and then we're going to finish up with another Louis Armstrong tune, Hotter Than That, to give Bob Schaffner a proper send off. Bob Schaffner was given uh, label billing on this album. It's called Chicago The Living Legends, Franz Jackson's Original Jazz All Stars, featuring Bob Schaffner. And uh, he clearly deserved that. So those are our four tunes in this set Shine, Colonel Bogey, King Porter Stomp, and Hotter Than That. We'll That's the Franz Jackson Original Jazz All-Stars from the fall of 1961 in Chicago. We heard shimmy shu to begin with, Spencer Williams' tune. Then we heard the Colonel Bogey March. I, I cited F.W. Bagley, who actually composed the National emblem March. This was Kenneth Alford who did Colonel Bogey. Then King Porter Stomp, of course, by Jelly Roll Morton. And then Louis Armstrong's Hotter Than That, all featuring Bob Schaffner on Trumpet, John Thomas on trombone, Franz Jackson on clarinet, Roselle Claxton on piano, uh, Lawrence Dixon on banjo, Bill Oldham on tuba, and Richard Curry on drums. So. That was the original Jazz All-Stars. And as I said, they lasted seven or eight years uh, and did quite a bit of work in Chicago and were quite an influence on the next generation of traditional jazz musicians. So we hope you enjoyed this program. This has been The Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and uh, we're continuing to uh, put out these jazz podcasts. And uh, I can see that there are people listening. So thank you very much for your support. And if you'd like to support us in a more material fashion, we wouldn't object to that either. So... Do keep listening to the podcast regardless. And also, if you happen to be uh, on uh, internet radio, I do a radio show on WETF, uh, South Bend, Indiana, the jazz station. And uh, those programs uh, show up on these podcasts after they finish running out there. So, more jazz to come in the time, uh, next few weeks, months, years, who knows what, but I have a lot of ideas and uh, hope you'll like some. So until then, I'll see you on the other side.